Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be in the circle with you today. I know that, as uh, was mentioned by Kathy earlier, this is always uh, a gathering where at least a few of us are newer to the circle and uh, are not entirely sure what we've just walked into. And so thanks for your courage in jumping into the midst of all this with us, and we hope and pray that uh, you are going to feel encouraged by the time that you spend with us. I need to tell you that we're in the middle of a, of a four-part series that we've called Together that is a, a refresh of our uh, shared imagination around a call that we felt God gave us a year ago now to, to join together to lift 10,000 people toward their God-given potential. And, and the particular vision for how we were going to go about doing that through ministering in deeper ways to uh, young families, to people with disabilities, to uh, folks out in the, in the wider society and around the world through our mission partners, that all gets painted for you in one of these booklets that you can get out at the literature stations today. Uh, this particular booklet's useful also because it has inside of it a place to take notes on the messages in the series. And if you're one of the people that's already using this, page 28 is where we're starting today. Uh, if you're online with us today, you can also get this information by going to um, the uh, Lyft signature on the uh, webpage, the, uh, our website front page. And if you click on Learn More, it'll take you to a place where you can get an online version of this. In the materials that we have there, uh, you'll find a, a card that looks like this one here. Um, it says um, it's a commitment card. And, and next week, we're going to come as a whole church family, and we're going to be turning these cards in as a way of uh, reaffirming the commitment, uh, the sense of leading that God has given us for the part that he wants us to play in the, in the support of the church's ministry for the entire next year. And uh, if you're newer to the church's life and you might have a heart to join us in this, this is an instrument that you can use. And I just invite you to be praying about uh, how the Lord would be stirring and moving in your heart to have you join with us in this. Because at the end of this two years, and that's one year from now, we are going to have an amazing amount to celebrate together. And we've already seen such incredible fruit from the commitments already uh, exercised in terms of the way we're able to reach kids and, and help families and strengthen marriages and serve in the wider world. Um, it has been a miracle to watch. And uh, it keeps going. So you're welcome to join us if you feel so led in, uh, when we gather next week on Commitment Sunday. Um, I want to just acknowledge that um, one of the the things I have to keep doing is reminding folks kind of the journey that we've been on. So I want to touch base, if I may, on some of the big ideas that we've been touching on in the series so far. In the first week of our, of our Lift or Together series, I tried to make the point that following Jesus in life uh, often means making some hard right turns off of the very wide, well-traveled roads that many people are journeying down uh, onto the much narrower lane of, uh, that Jesus calls the way of his kingdom. And, and in the, 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 there are lots of zones in life where this is needed, where we have to turn. The Bible's word for that, by the way, is repentance, when we make those hard right turns. Um, we have to, to, to turn away from the way the world handles conflict towards the way that Jesus does. We have to turn away from the way the world defines love to the way that Jesus 
understands love. I mean, there's so many areas of life. But I, in the first week of the series, I, I acknowledge that one of the areas where we have to make these turns is in the, in the area of, of what I guess you'd have to call consumer materialism. There's such a pervasive, powerful pull upon us to travel the very wide road of consumer materialism today. And if it was an issue in Jesus' time, and Jesus taught very often to this subject, uh, you can only imagine what it is like in our time. And, and Jesus says, I want you to not go that route, but I want you to enter onto the way of generosity and servanthood that is the way of my kingdom. That was installment number one in our Together series. Last week, uh, both Tracy Bianchi and I uh, explored the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. And the big idea in that uh, text was that if we're overly preoccupied with, uh, with getting or keeping or dusting or storing or reorganizing or constantly upgrading all of our stuff, then it's, it's going to have this tendency to, to keep us from experiencing the amazing kind of joy that comes from seeing the miracles that Jesus can do when we put what we have in his hands. And we told the story of the little boy who did just that and how Jesus took the, the tiny offering that this young man's life, all that he had at that moment, and, and multiplied it in a miraculous way to meet the needs of others and to shape and inspire uh, even others in the crowd that day. Today, I want to take us down a slightly different route and have us think a little bit about how important it is that we are as thoughtful about uh, what we do with our saving as we are about how we handle our spending. And, and if you were to draw sort of a total picture of what kind of a biblical understanding of, of money management is about, it would include a, a category having to do with spending, a category around the subject of debt, and, a, and another one having to do with, with saving and what we do with what, with what we've saved. And so I wanna take us to a teaching that Jesus gave us on this subject, one of many. Uh, but this one is found in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. And so if you've got a Bible on your phone or, or even a physical one with you, there's even some in the backs of the, of the seats, uh, follow along with me, uh, Luke chapter 12, at verse 16. Listen to the words of Jesus. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And now, just keep this in mind. If he was a rich man, he had a place to store his crops. He, he, what he's saying here is, I don't have um, a large enough place to store all my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, it's also important to note here that he sees the grain, the goods, and the land as his. And, and, and on some level, he, they were. And on another level, there was a sense in which these things had come from other sources in life. He goes on and says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy Eat, drink, and be merry. If you ever heard that phrase used in popular culture, this is the story it comes from. Eat, drink, and be merry. And I want you to notice the whole reference point. At this point in his life, what you're seeing is somebody who is spending a lot of time thinking about how things are going to go for him. Nothing wrong with that, as I'll say in a moment. Um, that should be a part of how we think about life. Um, but this is very much of his vantage point. 
In fact, in, in a lot of ways, this guy uh, is a wise person. Uh, there's a lot of evidence based just on the bare details of the story that through some combination of hard work and intelligence and fortune, uh, he, he is now in a pretty good place in life. He is losing no sleep at all about how he's going to pay off all his debts. He might not have any. He's got all these, these, the, the barns. He doesn't have maybe any debts. He's, he's equally not at all anxious about how he's going to manage if something disastrous happens. If the creek suddenly rises or the storm comes, he, he, he knows I'm going to be okay. Uh, the biggest question in the guy's mind at this particular moment is where am I going to put all the resources I've saved up and that keep building up? What am I going to do with that? I have a storage problem. I know, he says, I'll build a bigger barn to house all of this stuff. Then I'll be able to put my feet up. I'll pop a cork. I'll sit back. I'll think to myself, man, life is good. My life is good. Now, I'm, always, I'm often struck when I read the Bible, uh, these really ancient stories, how current these stories are. How like, wow, th how things don't change that much over the millennia of human history. Because this particular vision of life is being pictured for us all the time in our world today. I, I want to encourage you, just pay attention over the next week or two to the financial planner ads. To the picture of, of, the, the, of these beautiful people on the sailboat, you know, at the, at the cocktail party, at the, you know, playing with the grandkids. The image that is always being put out there is that if we invest right, we save right, we handle debt right, we can finally get to a position where we'll have the good life, where we can sit back and just enjoy the golden glow of all that we've managed to secure for ourselves. And, and, and we can take life easy, we can eat, drink, and be merry. Am I the only one who notices that, that that's kind of the image? Now, it's probably the image because there's a certain part of any one of us that, like, aspires to that. Because it's not a terrible vision entirely of life. It's a good goal to be secure and to have enough and, and, to, and to be able to enjoy things. There's just one minor issue this guy hasn't apparently focused enough on that Jesus points out in the parable. But God said to the rich man, you fool, this very night... Your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is the tell here about what Jesus' real concern is. It's not that you've built up these resources. It's that you think about them in, mainly in terms of yourself. And you don't recognize you're just passing through. You're just passing through this world. Think of your life as more than a container. Think of your life as a con conduit. Think of your life not as a reservoir, but as a river. Uh, I get out to LA with some regularity because I serve on the board of a theological seminary in Pasadena. And, 
And uh, one of the places that I occasionally visit is a very famous cemetery by the name of Forest Lawn. And Forest Lawn is now like a franchise. It's, got, it's a big operation. I'm not sure it's a franchise, but it's got multiple locations all around LA. And, and Forest Lawn has got these incredible fountains and beautiful landscaping and magnificent crypts and all these kind of statuary and so forth. It's often euphemistically called Disneyland for the dead. Um, and Walt Disney actually is buried there. Uh, and um, there's a famous story of a guy who arranged to be buried in spectacular fashion at Forest Lawn. And, and, they, and I've told this story once before, so some of you will remember this image. He was buried in his Cadillac. They, a big crane lowered the Cadillac into this extra large hole and, and they embalmed him in a way that he was sitting up in the Cadillac with a cigar glued in his mouth. And one of the groundskeepers seeing this is said to have remarked, man, now that's really living. <laughs> it's really interesting when you think about the way people define really living. You know, really, really living. Uh, some people, I think, do define it as sort of like, you know, who, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Um, some people may not be that extreme about it, but, but they think about the subject of debt and of earning and of debt and of savings and of investing with the goal of building up such a big barn of resources that they can live on easy street the rest of their lives. And that's the big focus of thinking is that I want that security, I want that satisfaction, I want that kind of life. The question is, is that really living? Uh, is that what Jesus meant when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly? Is that, is that the vision Jesus had in mind? Well, according to the Bible, and this won't be surprising to everybody, is that Jesus had a somewhat different understanding of what life with a capital L was really all about. And, and Jesus basically communicated in various ways, the stories and personal example, that one of the best reasons to manage our resources wisely and well is so that we can get to be in a position where we get to enjoy the living that comes from giving. And in a sense, Jesus' giving of himself upon the cross is sort of the ultimate image of this. Uh, that that, that he, with his last breath, he gives himself away for the sake of, of, of other people. And, and I love the poetic way that uh, a Puritan preacher of an earlier era by the name of John Bunyan once put it. it. He said in one of his poems, there was a man, some called him mad, the more he gave, the more he had. The more he gave, the more he had. The only thing that really lasts in this life is love. All the buildings crumble. You know, all of the organizations of the churches, like the one exception, historically, have, have gone out of business. Somebody else takes their place. The only thing that really, really, really lasts is, is the loving impact of somebody's life upon other people in a way that shaped them, moved them, 
and then made them reproduce that kind of love in the lives of other people. That's the thing that goes on. Uh, St. Paul says, faith, hope, love, abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the thing that survives the grave, and I've, I've, I've been at a lot of graves. Uh, it's my job is to go to the grave, and they never talk about the toys at the grave. They only want to talk about the love, the impact of that life that goes on. So in his reflecting on the teaching of Jesus and on the nature of life, the Apostle Paul once wrote this in a letter that he, that he penned to a young leader by the name of Timothy that he was mentoring, and he said this, Tim, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain Don't be arrogant. Don't make it all about you. Don't put your hope in wealth, which can be very, very uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Hold on to that phrase. We're going to come back to that. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. We talked about this two weeks ago when we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, where, where we were reminded that one of the roles of the church is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds because this is the way we're gonna have influence long after we even leave this earth. Um, command them to do these things, says St. Paul. For in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Because again, the treasure that matters most is life-changing love. Do you have a love that changes the lives of other people? That's your treasure. That's what will last beyond. That is the currency of heaven and eternity, is life-giving love. Do this so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that is really living That's the teaching that we get from Paul. So I want to have you make special note of the interesting twist in the teaching here. Um, Because he starts out in this particular passage by reminding us of the God who provides everything for our what? Our enjoyment. Yeah, this is a really major predicating idea to everything else that comes after this that God actually cares about providing us with things for our enjoyment. God is not stingy. God is not kind of a celestial Scrooge up there uh, who's looking down and really irritated when we're having a party, when we're enjoying ourselves. No, Jesus tells us that the heavenly father is the father that throws great banquets uh, he, he, in fact, he irritated the Pharisees of his time, the religious teachers of his time, who were much more pinch-faced and, and miserly about when, the way he pictured God as this party-throwing kind of God. He's the God, Jesus says in one of his most famous parables, who delights in putting on his kids the best robe, a beautiful ring, a fine set of sandals. So God is not against stuff, God is is a generous God. He wants his kids to enjoy life. In no way does God glorify or romanticize material poverty. I can't find anything in the Bible that, that glorifies material poverty. God has compassion for those in material poverty. God blesses those who turn to him in the midst of their material poverty, but he doesn't want material poverty. 
In fact, he calls his people to address material poverty, as we'll discuss in just a moment. But neither does God romanticize or glorify thoughtless prosperity, selfish prosperity. And and that's the twist in the story. This lavishly generous God who provides everything for our enjoyment also commands us to be generous like he is to share our money and possessions and to be rich in good deeds, to help others experience more enjoyment. And and he has to command us to do this because the money God is so powerful. Jesus in one of his teachings uh, used a word to describe money and the word was mammon, which is a personified understanding of money. Money is like, an influential person. It's whispering in your ear. It's pushing you. It's goading you. It's challenging you at all times. It is trying to take over your life. It's a master, he said. And if that was true in the first century, imagine today with all of the engines and the organs of communication that exist, how potent is the money God in our time. We have to be commanded to turn away from the money God and towards the narrower way of generosity and servant. Does that make sense to you? You see how that works? So anybody who finds their way into the generous life, and I know a bunch of you, you're exemplars of this, so I'm not preaching at you. I'm celebrating your modeling of this. Uh, anybody that finds their way into that life realizes generosity is not an obligation. It's an opportunity. I mean, it's not a duty. It's a delight It's a a remarkable way into a deeper and more wonderful kind of life, which is why a lot of these gazillionaires out there today have taken this pledge to give everything away before they go because they have discovered there's so much joy in using resources to bless others and address problems. Um, And I think it's when we become givers at a deeper level that we begin to understand how this how giving is a pathway to living, to the life that never dies in a sense, because love doesn't die. Um, and so if we are somebody like the rich man in this particular parable who, who dies tonight without ever having you know, organized ourselves to be rivers, not reservoirs, conduits, not containers, if we haven't established a pattern for this, then who will get what we've prepared? We know the answer to that question. The government will get it. Right? The grave will get it. The, the recyclers and, and rust will get it. Which is why I think that one of the biggest favors the Bible does for us is give us some help in picturing an alternative pathway, different road for how we might manage our resources. So let me just suppose that you and I, at least a bunch of us in the room, maybe not all of us, some of us may be really just struggling with the debt issue. And, and that's probably the first thing we have to work on is figuring out, oh, how do we get out, out of debt? That's why we offer Financial Peace University as a, a great course in the life of our church that can help with that. But let's, let's assume for a moment that, that some of us are in a position where where most of our money and possessions don't belong to a credit agency of any kind, 
and we have gotten enough control of our spending and of our savings to possibly have some margin with this. And imagine that we have gotten a greater capacity now to invest uh, with our giving than maybe we fully exercised. And it's not a wild supposition that some of us are in that place, given the context of American life today. Um, it's an interesting thing to note that, um, that, that real income, which means adjusted for inflation income, has increased for middle-class households by about 50% over the past 50 years, and for upper-income households, uh, and DuPage County has lots of people in the upper-income bracket, um, it's increased by nearly 70%. During that same period of time, giving, charitable giving, uh, has dropped to a 40-year low. Uh, it is now, according to the most recent statistics, at 1.7% of personal disposable income gets committed in that way. The average household, only 1.7%, um, which means 98.3% they feel they have to spend on the barn, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's going other places that are not seen. And obviously there are variances depending on what household you're in. But that's, that's the statistic. Uh, we comprise, we Americans comprise 4.23%, just a little over 4% of, of the world's population. We, we, yet we manage 30%. We control 30% of the world's wealth. Um, in 2023, we spent collectively $79 billion on weight loss products products, and we spent $139 billion on pet care. Um, losing weight, caring for pets, good things. The question is, where does it figure? Where does it figure in our overall priorities? Over the next couple of decades, the baby boom generation will pass on $53 trillion to somebody. Where, where, will the, where will that go? Where will that go? So I cite all of these stats not to be critical at all. I live in the middle of this world too. I'm just being contextual. And so let's suppose that in the midst of this context, we have the ability, at least some of us do, to do something like the boy we talked about in last week's uh, message. We have the capacity to give something to others, to put something more in Jesus' hands. Here's the question. What should we spend our money on? Where should we direct our resources? I'm so glad you asked because that's where I'm gonna go for the remainder of the message. And that is, I just wanna suggest to you a possible framework for, for thinking about that question together. And I wanna suggest that one of the things that binds us together um, is, and I'll go to the image I gave last week of the rowing boat. Uh, if, if you're in the, in the boat with Jesus and with his people, then, then you have help in figuring out how to move. You have help from what they call the coxswain, who's like the in-boat coach. And in the Christian life, the in-boat in coach we have is scripture, the voice of God in scripture, and through the voice of the spirit in our lives. And so if we take those things seriously, the Bible, the voice of the, of, of the Holy Spirit, I wanna suggest that it would lead us to make priority investments in three different categories of people, okay? And in what proportion and what order 
one should make investments in these three different categories, I'm not gonna tell you. I can't. Listen for the Holy Spirit in your life. Do, according to your circumstances, what you think makes sense. But what I will say is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you take the Bible seriously, then there are definitely three places where your giving should be going. Are you open to hearing what the Bible says about that? Okay. The first one will surprise you, some of you. God says, give to your family. Make sure you're taking care of your family. Now, that needs to be done prayerfully, and that's to be, that needs to be done carefully. I'm not called to give my family everything that I have. I'm not called to give my family all that they might wish for me to give them. But I am definitely, as able, called to give what I can towards their needs. Um, the Apostle Paul says, and I quote, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. We are meant to care for our family. Stewardship guru Howard Dayton writes, in our culture, we're experiencing a tragic breakdown in this area of sharing. Husbands have failed to provide for their wives or the mother of their children. Parents have neglected their children and grown sons and daughters have neglected their elderly parents. Such neglect is solemnly condemned in scripture, Dayton writes. Our families are our first church. They're the place where the effect of Jesus on our lives, the values of the kingdom are meant to land first and, and, and shape the environment. And because generosity is an important value of the kingdom of God, it's only natural that we will want to be generous with the members of our family. The second area of giving for Christians is, is closely related to the first one and if I'm a follower of Jesus, I will make it a priority to give to Christian ministries. Now, at my house, we give to all kinds of things. As I imagine your house, you do too. Uh, we give to you know, breast cancer research and to uh, autism uh, care and to veterans and to our undergraduate colleges and uh, you know, just a bunch of other really worthy causes have over the years gotten some piece of our charitable giving and care uh, because we value the, the good work that they're doing in the world. But we, we give considerably, considerably more to Christian ministries. Why? Uh, why? Two reasons. First one, very personal. It's because we think of mission partners, missionaries, church workers, Christian agencies, institutions, we think of those people as our extended family. We think of them as our brothers and sisters because these are the people with whom, by God's grace, Amy and I are gonna spend eternity. And we also know that these, these family members have a much more limited pool of resources to draw from for their continuance. Um, they have fewer cousins than the United Way does uh, to support uh, their lives and all that they're doing. I hope you see that. That's the personal reason. They are extended family. Second reason we prioritize giving to Christian ministries is a practical one. It, it's, the, it's with the exact same mentality that Amy, my wife, 
spends a lot more money on seeds and bulbs that she puts in the ground than she spends on cut flowers. Why would she do that? Why would she invest more in seeds and bulbs than in cut flowers? Because over time, more flowers. Because of that investment. Churches, Christian ministries, are the seedbed out of which grows so much of the great work of this world. I went to a university founded by the Christian church. I've been cared in hospitals, cared for in hospitals. Our kids were born in hospitals that were established by Christian churches. Uh, The nation that we live in arguably grew up and out of the church and missionary movement of Jesus Christ, and it feels really strategic for us to be positioning a larger portion of our giving in Christian causes because we know that they will end up seeding leaders, casting vision, moving resources to more parts of the world than if we didn't support those kinds of entities, if we didn't plant those bulbs in a sense, or resource those bulbs. Without strong churches and ministries, our kids are going to be living in the future in a cut flower society. We'll have the bloom of good ethics for a little while. We'll have the bloom of of compassion. We'll have the bloom of, of some concern for the neighbor. But it's not a coincidence that, that, that so many of our social problems today, the fact that we're at each other's throats in the political world, has happened just as church attendance and church engagement and healthy churches have, have, have withered away for lack of personal support by so many people. Uh, we don't want to live in a cut flower society. So Amy and I make a priority of giving to faith-based ministries and a significant portion, the largest portion, to our local church. What's the priority that Christian ministries are getting in your giving as you think about the list of, of things that you give to? Third and final category of people the Bible strongly commends for our investment is those who will perish without the investment. Jesus calls us to give to the poor, uh, to give to the poor. Again and again, God makes it really clear. I have a heart for the poor. I have a heart for people that can't get out of the ditch without somebody coming, without somebody turning aside, coming down into the ditch. One of the most, the second most famous parable of Jesus is the parable of the what? The good Samaritan. It should be called the parable of the God Samaritan because what Jesus is telling us about in that story is what God has a heart to do, and that is to find people who cannot lift themselves and and come alongside them and get, even if it gets, it's a messy work and and requires sacrifice and requires going out of your way. God is a being that that does this for for others and he wants us to be like that as well. And, And so Jesus identifies with the poor and so much so that he even says that if you, If you do care for them, you're caring for me. If you fail to care for them, you're basically saying you're flipping yourself towards me. He says he's that strident in some of his teaching about the need to care for the poor. So every time you sponsor a kid in the developing world, 
Every time you give to the ministries of our mission partners that work amongst the poor in Chicagoland and all around the planet, every single time you do something in some other way that lifts up the most vulnerable people, you are making Jesus smile. You know, you can wonder a lot of the time, am I I pleasing God with the way I'm living my life? If you care for the poor, you can know that you're pleasing him. More than that, the Bible actually says, and I quote this verse from Proverbs, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but whoever closes their eyes to the poor receives many curses. And and the implication here is that God's provision of further resources is related in some extent, maybe not in a linear way, uh, not in a push-button way, but it's related in some way to the kind of stewards we are towards the least of Christ's brothers and sisters. One of the most moving stories in the New Testament um, is, is told to us by the Apostle Paul. Back in the, the end of the first century and early uh, second century, the, the original church, the very first church uh, in Jerusalem was under incredible persecution. Uh, They were losing their jobs because of their faith. They were being arrested. They were being harassed. They were being tortured. They were being killed. Both the local Jewish authorities and the, um, the Roman Empire had decided these people were dangerous and they needed to be squashed. And they were struggling in a terrible way. And so Paul, learning about this, sends out this all points bulletin all across the ancient world to the, to the churches scattered wherever they were because the believers in Jerusalem were obviously three targets for giving. Think about this. They they, they were the extended family of other believers. They were the first Christian ministry, the original church, and they were undeniably poor. And so Paul says, hey, we've got to do something about this. And the appeal came to the church at Corinth, which was like the Chicago of the day. It was a cosmopolitan city um, in the center of the empire. And, and, and it was one of the most educated, financially affluent of all of the parts of the Christian movement at this moment. And, and Paul writes this letter of appeal to the Corinthian church, and he says this, just as you excel in everything, you're excellent people, you're amazing people, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In other words, you folks have it wired. You're you're doing a beautiful job with your life. You're builders in this world. You you do things excellently. Don't miss the truth that, that giving is really living. Be excellent in that way too, he says. And then he adds on this little bit, which you may remember from a other message I've given on this topic. Paul Paul says. I want you to know about the church that's currently setting the pace in helping the Jerusalem Christians. And and everybody's waiting, you know, it's going to be Rome. A lot of money in Rome. It's going to be Ephesus, huge commercial center of that time. Maybe it's Philippi, you know, lots of great businesses in that area. But no, it's the Macedonian churches. It's it's a part of the world. where there's great poverty and great persecution going on as well. 
And Paul says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty is welling up in rich generosity for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And I love his vision of grace here. The grace isn't that they're out of persecution. The grace isn't that they're out of poverty. The grace is that the love of God is moving through them despite those conditions and going to other people. They're part of this movement of God's life-changing love, this grace that's greater than the gravity of life, and it's awesome to watch this. It's awesome to see it. And he adds then this last part that I love especially, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They pleaded with us. Let us be involved. Let us live together with you. What if, what if that was true? for you and for me and for our church, for the other churches of our region? What if our hearts were were, were so moved by the needs of our family and of Christian ministries and of the poor that we began to do something even more amazing? What, what, What if you and I were that inspired by the grace of God that's met us in Jesus Christ who gave everything he had? What if that so rocked us and amazed us and inspired us that we became even more generous than we were yesterday? What if we were so determined not to miss the overflowing joy that comes from seeing what Jesus can do when we put things in his hands, that we managed our money differently going forward. We managed it with an express commitment not to expanding the size of the barn, but to moving more resources out towards people. What if we were attuned to the beauty and the goodness of this way of life that we pleaded for the privilege of lifting even more people. What if we did that together? I don't know what you might say about that. I I don't know what others might say if they knew you and I were doing it. But I do know what the one who stands not far from your grave and mine would say as he watched us make that turn and and go this direction, I think Jesus would say, man, now that's really living. Please pray with me. Lord, speak to us by your spirit. Speak to us not in the power of human words, but of your Holy Spirit, and guide us in your way that we might know the more abundant life and others might know more of the enjoyment of life that you have envisioned for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we prepare to head out today, I just want to invite you to be encouraged that um, 
this movement, this touch of God's spirit is not something that is, uh, you know, a preacher thing. It's something that's happening in the life of this body. Uh, listen to the testimony of this uh, young couple and how the Lord is at work uh, in their hearts and through their hearts towards others. We're the Teneries. We've been coming to Christ Church for about 13 years. I think initially what attracted us to Christ Church were the uh, teaching and the worship. The teaching we just found to be super engaging and biblically sound. And from a worship standpoint, we really liked where things were moving. I started participating in MAPS and you know, I think we both experienced when you joined an organization inside a big church, it makes it a little bit smaller. At the time for me, it was men's fraternity. And next thing I knew, I was, you know, making even deeper relationships with both men my age, but those older than me as well. I think we all feel a little lost, right? So being new parents, you know, having other families to connect with, and then being that this church is just a variety of people with different backgrounds and ages, just having mentors speak into us and helping us along the way, that's, that's invaluable. I found out that I was diagnosed with kidney cancer. And one Sunday before I was gonna have a surgery to have my kidney removed, a group of people met us in a little room on the side of the fellowship hall to lay hands on us, um, just to cover us in prayer before that surgery and just to surround us. That is like a small sliver of the way that I've received grace and received fulfillment, received what Christ Church has to offer. We wouldn't have friends that are family surrounding us had we not put ourselves out there to meet others. And Take Root, it was spiritually significant in a variety of ways. It was the first generosity campaign or, or really kind of any large effort that we had been a part of at Christ Church. I think like any young couple, finding our way between you know starting to raise kids, mortgage, and all those sorts of things are all still relatively new. And we knew that God was likely calling us to be faithful and also do it with the, the community here. We approached it with the hope that it would you know, really impact our faith and that we would learn to walk with God in new ways that we hadn't yet and, and as a couple. So I would say that it was not very easy for me initially to give financially. I was more than okay to give of my time and talents, but when it came to the money, I think I felt like I needed to see where it was going. We were going through the Lyft workbook and learning about the early church through the sermons, through our study together. I felt really convicted learning about the early church and how everybody gave what they had and that was okay, that was enough. And they were doing exactly what they were called to do, which is serve one another with the resources that they were given. And so all of that together just really solidified lift for us. You know, giving with the resources to the best of your ability, pulling it together for everyone. We do kind of have a plan to finish strong with our giving. We're really excited, especially with little but positive changes that have already started happening in Lyft. I'm excited in, in terms of how God's been faithful and how we've also heard other people speak about their stories of how he's been faithful. Hopefully God will continue to do a work on our hearts and hearts of others to have us be challenged in new ways. 